Hello, and welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, September 30th, 2018, we're continuing our series titled, Knowing Truth, The Letters of John. In today's sermon, Right Loving, Pastor Doug Farrington will be teaching out of 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. We hope you enjoy. In a world of disagreements, large and small. I don't believe that you exist. Go think whatever you want. Go ahead. How can a good and powerful God allow innocent people suffer unspeakable tragedies? But then there's all these questions, you know, about ethics and moral issues as well. And I would say, well, they're crazy for not testing what they think they believe. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not real. It's as real as what you see. And, and I begin with the assumption that God is love. And love is love is love is love. I think that the orthodox, historic Christian tradition is this vast, diverse conversation that's been going on for thousands of years. Before we do anything else, can we stop and pray together? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this, this day, this beautiful day in this beautiful place, and thank you for surrounding me with brothers and sisters like these. God, I pray that um, as we dig into your word today that you'll just get me out of the way, that I, would, that I would decrease so that you can increase. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our lives and, and that you would be shaping us and convicting us and molding us and, and conforming us into the image of our Savior. God, bless this time that we spend together. I pray that everything that's said and done and thought in this place will bring honor and glory to you. And we pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So you're probably thinking, I can't believe they've given him a microphone again. <laughs> and I get it. Seriously, it's a privilege to be here with you all this morning and talking about God's word with you. The regular teaching pastors have been doing really an amazing job of, of unpacking and explaining the wisdom that's available to us here in the book of 1 John. I do think it's, it's helpful to kind of revisit the why. What was the reason for John writing this particular letter to Christians? I also think it's helpful to be reminded of why a 2,000-year-old context is still so important and so applicable today. It's widely held amongst biblical scholars that John wrote what has become known as 1 John in response to false teaching, to heresy that was creeping up in the churches all across Asia Minor in the first century. John's goal here is that the churches and, and, and then we would have correct understanding of who Jesus truly is and ultimately what that means for all of us. He is providing us, John is, with right teaching to help properly establish what we believe and what we know. Right teaching establishes what we believe and what we know. As a man who had literally walked alongside of Jesus and known him on a personal level of intimate friendship, the author was uniquely qualified to speak truth about Jesus and a life lived for him and through him. And he starts out in the first few, vis- excuse me, the first few verses of chapter one, establishing Jesus' divinity and character and the eyewitness nature by which he could speak of it. Right at the beginning of the book, it's laid out for us. In 1 John 1, 1 through 3, it says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it 
and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. He goes on to describe some attributes of God, both the Father and the Son. 1 John 1, 5 and 6 says this, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Then there's an admonition that, that light and darkness, they're incompatible. If we claim to have fellowship with Christ while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. With right teaching, John reminds Christians that Jesus' blood cleanses us from all sin and unrighteousness when we confess our sin and walk in the light. And the fact of the matter is, we are all sinners. And we better realize it because until we come to grips with the reality of our own sin and and our responsibility to turn away from it and the absolute necessity of Jesus' blood poured out for us, then we haven't fully connected with the Father and, and the gospel message has not yet taken root in us. And we move along. Several weeks back, Jeff, Pastor Jeff, taught us about knowing our advocate, who is Jesus Christ, and understanding the penalty that he paid on our behalf. And how if we say we know him, but we don't keep his commandments, John's word here says we are liars. Then Thomas explained what it means to walk in the light. And if we say that we walk in the light, but we hate our brother, we're still in darkness and living apart from the Father. And it's so dark that we can't even see where we're going. See, John says that if you know your advocate, you'll obey his commandments. And if you're walking in the light, then you'll love your brother. John's not pulling any punches here. His goal in writing all this down for us is that this right teaching, which is truth about a holy God and fallen man and and man's need for an advocate and for propitiation, that this right teaching would equip and arm early Christians and modern ones with foundational understanding that would lead us then to right living. Right teaching would lead us to right living. And right living is what we do. It's how we behave, right? Right living is reflected in how we walk. We can't say that we've embraced the light but then keep on walking in darkness regularly and unrepentantly living in sin. In the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 12 and 15, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Last week, Bob led us through chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, and that was sort of, sort of a lyrical, poetic break from the, the, the convicting sort of beatdown that John has been lovingly uh, delivering since the beginning of the book. He offers words of encouragement to believers wherever they find themselves in their walk. You remember, he, he wrote to little children who are believers young in their faith, new to the faith, Right? He wrote to young men who are growing believers who are in the midst of the fight. And he wrote to fathers who are mature believers who have been there and done that. And they've been through the battles and they have wisdom now born of experience. 
with that passage is an understanding that we're not supposed to stay where we are. It's, it, it's not to, that we should become a Christian and then never grow and never progress, never surrender ourselves to God's sanctifying work in our lives. There needs to be movement toward the foot of the cross and toward the goal of becoming more and more like Jesus. Now, we're already like more than five minutes in and I still haven't gotten to the passage I'm gonna teach on. So I hope you're having as much fun as I am, but we'll get there. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. 1 John 2, 15 through 17, and then follow along as I read. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So we had the little break, the encouragement that Bob preached on, but, but don't worry because John has now effectively taken us back out behind the woodshed, right? He's bringing, he's bringing the heat again. The good news is that we can take great encouragement from all of God's word, even when it's convicting us and shining light into the dark corners of our lives in the areas that are hardest to surrender to God. Remember that we talked about right teaching, which is what we believe and what we know, and we talked about right living, which is what we do and how we behave. In a moment here, we're going to define what we're gonna refer to as right loving. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, wait, 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 wait. So do not love the world, but doesn't John 3.16 say that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life? Yes, it does say that. It absolutely does. So before we go any further, it might be helpful if we look just a little bit deeper and find the definition of those two words, the definitions of love and of the world. Depending on whom you ask, you may have heard that there are four primary words for love in the Greek. Eros, which is a sexual love. Storge, which is a parental love. Phileo, which is a brotherly love. And then agape. And agape is, a, is the love like God has for us, which is a love of choice, of preference, of charitable goodwill for the other person or entity. The word for love that's used here in verse 15 is derived, derived from the agape type of love. It's in its verb form. So the actual word is agapao. And it means to take pleasure in, to prefer, or to choose. And then the word world comes from the Greek word cosmos, K-O-S-M-O-S. And cosmos has at least eight different definitions. The one in John 3.16 is referring to humanity or mankind or folks, you and me. For God so loved you and me. For God so loved the people that he gave. But what we're reading about here in 1 John chapter 2 verse 15 denotes the worldly system or the worldly order of things. And the worldly order of things is a wicked system that is in direct opposition to God. Now, do you know whom the Bible says is in charge of the worldly order of things? 
Satan. 1 John 5, 19 says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Satan. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul refers to Satan as the God of this world. Now he uses a little G because there's only one capital G, God, right? But the fact that Paul is referring to Satan as the God of this world ought to tell us something. So it makes sense that Romans 12, 2, like we saw on the screen during one of the songs, tells us, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Good and acceptable and perfect. These are all things that the world and its order of things is not. If we substitute these definitions for the words love and world, we'd read verse 15 like this. Do not choose the worldly order of things or the things in the worldly system. If anyone chooses the worldly order of things, the ability to choose the Father is not in him. James 4.4 says this, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, when I first read that James 4.4 4 passage and I saw that, that uh, first little phrase there, you adulterous people, it, it brought an image to my mind and I thought, how can I illustrate this to the folks in church? And so bear with me here. Here's the illustration that I came up with. Missy loves this, my wife. My wife Missy and I have been married for going on 22 years. It'll be 22 years in March. And she is my best friend. She is an immeasurable blessing to me. And I thank God for her every single day. When I say that I love her, man, you better believe that I mean it. So suppose that I came to Missy one day and I said, Honey, you know how much I love you, right? And she goes, Yeah. Where's this going? And I say, babe, you are my, my A number one priority and nothing and nobody could ever measure up to the way I feel about you and how I value you and how I esteem you. And she goes, mm-hmm. So with all that being said, sweetie, I just wanted to let you know that I'm gonna go and spend the weekend with my old ex-girlfriend that I used to date before we got married. No? That's not, that's not cool? Honey, you don't like that? Okay, okay, fine. All right, not, not for the whole weekend then. Maybe just a few hours together. Hmm, still no. Well, what if we just go have some drinks? Just the two of us. Okay, okay, just, just lunch. Just a quiet, intimate lunch. For... No, of course not. Right, of course that's not gonna fly, nor should it. Believe me when I tell you, if the, shoes were, the shoe was on the other foot, the situation reversed, and Missy wanted to go hang out with her ex, it would not be okay with me either. Why then would any of us think that we could spend the weekend or a few hours or even just have lunch with the world and its ruler and that God would be okay with it? Church, once we are born again in Christ, the world, the worldly system and its master, who is Satan, is our ex. Our abusive, controlling, manipulative ex. 
and he has no place in our lives or our hearts anymore. Now, the people who are ensnared by the system, the people that Satan is trying to get his clutches in and to keep separated from God for all of eternity, yes, we are to love them. We are to go after them. We are to pursue them so that we can share with them the love of Christ. Absolutely. But the system and the priorities and the beliefs and the default settings of the world, no way. Remember in Mark 12, 30, it says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's the greatest commandment. And that word all comes, get this, this is so great, it's amazing, I just love how God's word works. That word all comes from the Greek word which actually literally means what? All. In speaking of idols, God says in Exodus 20, Verse five, you shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God has every right to be jealous of our affection, of our attention, of our time and talents and treasures. In verse 16, in 1 John chapter two, he goes on to describe the trappings of that wicked worldly system. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So sinful desires are from the world, not from the Father. Sinful desires are from the world, not from the Father. Galatians 5.16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So you might be saying, Doug, what are some examples of the desires of the flesh or the desires of the eyes or the pride of life? Well, I'm so glad that you asked. Let me tell you. The desires of the flesh is that temptation to feel physical pleasure from some sinful activity to do something, to make the flesh feel satisfied, and it can involve any type of sinful activity that will bring pleasure to the body. Sexual sin, drug use, physical violence, gossip, gluttony, etc. The Apostle Paul gives a great example in Galatians 5, 19 through 21 of the works of the flesh. These are the things that we do when we succumb to the desires of the flesh. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, those who stay in such things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. The desires of the eyes is that temptation to look upon things that we shouldn't be looking at or to have things that we shouldn't have. In other words, it is to cast our eyes upon something with desire or yearning even though God has told us not to look on those things. Coveting is a perfect example of that, coveting or covetousness. To covet means to have a yearning or a strong desire to have something that rightfully belongs to someone else. To say, that's not fair that he has such a beautiful wife. I want to have her as my wife. 
Other examples of the desires of the eyes include looking at pornography, desiring others' material possessions or their status or their appearance, and on and on. It's the recognition that something sinful has visual appeal and then wanting it for the sake of its visual appeal. Second Samuel tells us the story of King David and Bathsheba. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. If you know the rest of the story, you know in this case what started out as sin born from David's desires of the eyes became a sin resulting from the desires of the flesh when he entered into an adulterous relationship with her. And she became pregnant. And ultimately, David committed sin stemming from the pride of life when, because she was pregnant, in an effort to not be found out and thus to protect his reputation, he had Bathsheba's husband sent to the front lines of the war knowing full well that he'd be killed. Sin is that way. Sin begets more sin, right? The pride of life is that sinful desire for excess greatness recognition or power that we all feel the temptation to attain. Pride itself is one of the sins that God hates most. It is the sin that made Lucifer, who was God's most beautiful angel, turn into Satan, who's the adversary. A few examples of this sin include desiring to get credit or glory for things that others, maybe even God, have done. Or desiring for, desiring for others to worship us or to hold us in excess esteem or to make a name for ourselves. Or to feel valued or more important than others around us. Or to have a position of power over others in a way that puffs up our own ego for the sake of bragging rights. Is that a thing today? Jesus actually said that those who desire to be great should be the greatest servant. Should humble themselves. Consider the words of Satan himself in Isaiah 14, 14, who was so filled with pride that he literally wanted to become God. Satan said, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. When Eve was tempted in the garden by Satan in Genesis 3, check this out, we'll see the progression. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, sin of the flesh, or desire of the flesh, and that it was a delight to the eyes, desire of the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, pride of life, she took of its fruit and she ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Adam and Eve checked all three boxes. The reality is that part of the human condition and of living in a fallen world is that we will all face these types of temptations at times. But 1 Corinthians 10.13 is this great encouragement to us as we think about temptation and certainly as we face them. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. Amen to that, right? God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide you the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. God is faithful. 1 John 2.17 reminds us of two final and very important things. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. See, the world and its desires are temporary. 
But obedience to the will of God leads to eternal life. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient. They are temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, friends, you probably wouldn't buy stock in a company that you knew was about to go belly up. And you wouldn't set up your house on a sinking ship, right? A reasonable person would not lay up treasure where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, as it says in Matthew 6.19, would they? The world is passing away. And if you watch the news at all, you can see that the worldly systems, including Satan's influence right here in our wonderful country, are completely self-destructive. To set your heart on it is only asking for misery in the end. Ask yourself, what is it that you're investing in? I'm going to go ahead and draw a very obvious connection right now because I believe it's an important piece of discipleship. God's word has more to say about money than it does about any other single topic. And I believe that's because money is the thing that is the most likely to take on the role of an idol in the lives of people today and throughout history. A huge part of the worldly system is that it wants us to find our significance and how much we have in the way of money and possessions. So often, we're basically consumed with the pursuit of money and the desire to grow it and have more of it and enthralled with all the great stuff that you can buy with it and the prestige and the supposed security that it provides. But think it through. Not only do we know that the world is temporary, but even while it lasts, the world is fickle. Earthly fortunes are made and lost in an instant. Money itself is not inherently evil, not at all. Money can be used to do incredible things, to bless the Lord and to do kingdom work. But 1 Timothy 6 tells us that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. In Matthew 6, 24, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other. These are strong words. He will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I didn't say it, Jesus said it. Take it up with him. We don't baptize people here in the name of the Father and the Son and the S&P 500. I love this verse that's just a few verses earlier in Matthew 6, 21. It says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There, excuse me, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The order that Jesus puts those words in is interesting. He didn't say wherever your heart is is where you'll put your money and treasures. No, he basically says, if you want to know where your heart is, look at where you're putting your treasures and that will tell you all you need to know. Not only is the world passing away, but also the lusts of it, the desires of it. If you choose the desires of the world, you will pass away. You will not only lose your treasure, 
you'll lose your life. If you love the world, it will pass away and it'll take you with it. But here's the good news. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. But what is the will of God? 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4 says, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So what is the will of God? The will of God is, is our salvation by grace through faith in Jesus and our sanctification our growing in the knowledge and depth of appreciation for God the Father's amazing grace brought to us in the person of God the Son, Jesus Christ, and our ongoing surrender to him and to his commandments. That's the will of the Father. If we step back and reflect on the fact that everything we have, our abilities, our finances and possessions, our families, our connections, however little or however much, we have it only on the say-so of God Almighty. And I pray that, that much like our love for the Father should make us want to be obedient to his commandments, our gratitude for his extravagant blessings will make us want to give those things back to him cheerfully and sacrificially as an act of worship so that they all can be used according to his purposes and all for his glory. I love the fact that stewardship, specifically tithing, is the one thing in scripture that God tells us to test him on. Malachi 3.10 says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. And see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Missy and I have witnessed this in our own lives. And I know that many, many people in here would be able to speak up and share examples of God's faithfulness when they've stepped out in obedience to him and brought their offerings to him. Not necessarily equal in amount, but equal in sacrifice. It truly is a matter of obedience and of spiritual maturity. The opposite of loving the world is not only loving the Father, but also in doing the will of the Father. And that connection is not hard to understand. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So loving the Father in verse 15 and doing the will of God in verse 17 they're really not separate things. They're very much connected. If you love God, you will love what he wills. It's, just, it's empty talk to say that I love God, but I don't love what God loves. So John is saying in verse 17, if you love the world, you will perish with the world. But if you don't love the world, but love God, you will do his will and live with him forever. Now, the other guys have talked about this and they've, and they've made it really, really clear. I'm, guys, we all sin and, and periodically we still all sin, okay? But what John is referring to is, is dwelling in it, is abiding in it. When we sin, we need to recognize it for what it is. We need to confess it to God and then repent. Repent means turn away. So I don't, want to misunder, I don't want anyone to misunderstand and I don't want to miscommunicate. I'm not saying that once you come to faith, 
You better not sin anymore because if you do, you're done. No. That's not what I'm saying. But if you do, excuse me, but if you don't love the world but love God, you will do his will and live with him forever. I'm confident, friends, I'm confident confident that if asked, the vast majority of people in this room right now would say that we love the Father and not the world. And I think that most of us would truly mean it because we believe it. And I, and I ask you, as I've been asking myself for these past several weeks while I've been studying for this message, does my life show that? Does yours? Are you living according to his will and purpose? Are you loving your brother and are you walking in the light? Are you giving of your finances gladly, faithfully, and sacrificially? If you're not doing these things, then ask yourself, why not? Is it because, is it because you're loving the world more than the Father? Friends, I can't answer that for you. But I'd ask you to pray about it. Would the, would the apps on my smartphone show that I care more about the Lord or about my football team or my social media presence? Would my computer search history reveal that I care more about God or about finding a gorgeous new house or a sweet new truck or what Chip and Joanna Gaines are doing? Or, or would it maybe even show that I've been looking at something more nefarious than trucks or houses? Would the way that I spend my recreation time prove that I choose my savior or my golf buddies? Now, can I be a football fan or do online truck shopping or enjoy a great golf course with some friends and still prioritize and honor creator God in all things? Of course, absolutely. But is that how I'm doing it? Is he my priority? Am I choosing him? Am I serving him in my local church with the talent and ability that he's given me? Am I devoting my time to showing love for God and love for people by being Jesus' hands and feet? And am I gladly bringing my offerings to him as an act of obedience and of worship? And friends, am I running every decision I make through the filter of, will doing this draw me closer to the foot of the cross and will it bring honor and glory to my heavenly father? Oh, church, let it be so for all of us. This is uh, such a good day and such a great passage on which to land for the observance of communion. I'm going to ask the people who are helping today, both the worship team and the people who serve the communion to come on up and prepare to lead us. And thank you guys for doing what you do. We appreciate you. While they come, we can begin the process of preparing ourselves to partake. Before taking communion, a believer should take time to reflect on his or her relationship with Christ. To evaluate just where you are and to honestly assess whether you have unconfessed sin in your life. 
Have your priorities been right? Have you been following what we've been learning about, right living and right loving, or have you been walking in darkness and choosing the world? Take the next couple of minutes and pray and open yourself up to hear God's voice and listen closely as he helps you to get right with him. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup. And after supper, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, thank you for the power of your word and thank you for the conviction that you bring when we study it. God, you are good and you're worthy of all our praise and honor and all the glory we can bring to you. Help us to choose you first, foremost, and always. And God, we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Church, right loving means that we choose the Father. I would challenge you, do it. Choose him and see how he transforms your life. God bless you.